Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today we'll be looking into police brutality and voter fraud. Later in the show, Vermont Secretary of State Jim Condos will join us to talk about the 2020 elections and respond to President Trump's attacks on the integrity of mail-in voting. But first, we're joined by former Chief of Police of Burlington, Vermont, Brandon Del Pozo. Del Pozo, who served as Burlington's top cop for four years, resigned in December following revelations that he created an anonymous Twitter account to troll a critic. Since then, he's earned a Ph.D. in philosophy and is now a public health and drug policy researcher affiliated with Brown University. Brandon Del Pozo, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Let me just start by getting your reaction to the events of the last four to six weeks, from the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, to the national movement for black lives that has spilled into the streets and towns and the calls uh, now to abolish the police. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that George Floyd video was really, really hard to watch. And I think a lot of the anger and frustration towards American policing is a long time coming. I think that um, one of the problems with American policing is it's 18,000 different agencies. And for a long time, they've been able to um, kind of pass the buck on the hardest reforms for two reasons. Number one, very strong unions. But number two, you could always look at a police department with a problem and the other police departments could say, that didn't happen here. So every other agency could look at George Floyd and say, that didn't happen here. When Tamir Rice was killed in um, Ohio, you could say that didn't happen here. But what Americans have seen over the years is that you never know where it's going to happen next. And they believe it could happen anywhere. And um, they're through trusting the police of America to, uh, to reassure them that, that, that it won't and that real change has happened. And now we're seeing like this real groundswell to address that. And I, I think, you know, I've written about this. I think it's been a long time coming. Why do you say that it's been a long time coming? Well, because when you look back, I mean, I, I, I looked at the, there was a, I forget her last name, but there was a woman named Tatiana who was killed in, in Fort Worth in, in uh, maybe it was December or November of last year. She was shot to death through an open, through her window at three in the morning. She was in her house playing video games. The police got called because her front door was open as a welfare check, and the cop ended up killing her he, through her window, shooting her. That cop's been indicted. But you look, there's, there's Tamir Rice. I mean, folks might not even remember the name of Jordan Edwards, the young man who was a African-American, great student, leaving an underage drinking party, got in his brother's car when the police got there. They just were driving off. Because who wants to get busted drinking at a party, especially when you're on the football team, 15 years old. Cops opened fire on him, shot him in the head, killed him. You know, we've been just saying that's, that happened in Ball Springs, Texas. This happened in Fort Worth. That happened in Minneapolis. It's infuriating that the American policing hasn't said as a profession, these, these effects are a root cause of the way we approach some of our problems and our encounters in policing. And as a profession, we're going to change them in unison. It's been literally recalcitrant, resistant, piecemeal change can't have that. And now it's boiling over. You write, uh, you had an op-ed in the New York Times on June 1st, um, and you write that police have aligned themselves with the president's flagrant racism and callous disregard for the nation's people of color. This alliance has made them a surrogate for the fury that so many Americans feel 
toward the White House and portrays them as the president's accomplices. Do you think that's a fair, uh, th that police are being fairly tagged that way as well, alliances with you know, racists? Right, and, and the other thing, you know, just go back, not go back on what I said, but bring it up again. There's, there's 18,000 agencies and three quarters of a million uh, police officers in the U.S. If you look at, like, Art Acevedo in Houston, he definitely, he, he will decry the president uh, all day long and into the night, right? And so will Chris Mangus out in Tucson. And so did I. I mean, I, I launched broadsides right at um, the Department of Justice under Trump, at Trump himself. I wrote an op-ed about police brutality uh, in the president for CNN two years ago, like literally saying what he says is irresponsible and wrong. But countless police departments um, culturally and even formally have just embraced Trump. And, you know, it's hard to not embrace somebody who says they love you and says, I think what you're doing is right. I don't care about your critics. He shut down the police reform arm of the Department of Justice. So collectively, if you look at which way the scales tip, it was in the favor of, of Trump, either through wholehearted support or just a benign embrace of his affection. Like, and in either case, it was horrible. And it says to black Americans, don't trust us because you can't trust him. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of reform. And one of the things that this current moment has kind of pulled back the curtain on is, um, you know, what is police accountability or lack of it? In the case of this Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, he had 17 complaints against him and was never disciplined. And uh, you appeared um, just recently in a, a video with BuzzFeed where they had some you know, really shocking statistics. Talk, just talking about the Minneapolis Police Department, there, since 2012, there have been over 2,600 police misconduct complaints. Only 12 have resulted in officers being disciplined. Why aren't police held accountable? And what's it going to take to change that? Yeah, I mean, just transparency. Um, I think that one of the changes I made when I got to Burlington was when, when I got to Burlington, the citizens had absolutely no access to civilian complaints. Um, you could only make one by reporting to the police station and talking to a police supervisor. And then once the complaint got taken, um, you know, it was handled internally. I thought that was completely unacceptable. So one of the things I did was make it so that you can, number one, report complaints uh, online, uh, anywhere, 24-7, uh, anonymously or in person with a tracking number. And then you also get um, the ability to make the complaint to the mayor's office, any police commissioner, any city councilor. Um, Migrant Justice was a recipient a venue for complaints, et cetera. And then the other thing that we did was we, we, we said that our seven citizen police commission would get to see them all. So we had to account to the police commission as to how we resolve the complaints. And right now in Burlington, folks are saying, um, this is not enough. Everybody should see every complaint. Citizens should directly discipline the police. You know, what they're, what they're saying, you can tell by the change in my tenor, like a group of citizens should directly discipline city employees in a completely open way for all to see. Like, you know, that is the far end of things. But um, what we had in Minneapolis was the other end, which strikes me as like a very opaque process with very tight union rules. Um, and just to cap that off, there are states with uh, police officer bill, bill of rights, where, for example, in Rhode Island, you can only suspend a police officer for two days without pay, no matter what they do. Um, and then they go on full pay until things are um, 
adjudicated. So if Derek Chauvin were arrested in Rhode Island for murder, he'd be on the Rhode Island Police Department uh, jurisdiction's payroll, not only now, but for years until the case is resolved. Well, we should also point out in, in Minneapolis, even when an officer is suspended or fired in Minneapolis, almost half of them are rehired. And, you know, despite all the outrage at what uh, happened in Minneapolis, it's possible those officers could be rehired if the police union is successful in using, you know, the means that is, are available to it. So why is civilian oversight? Um, I know that you, as you just said, you're, you're opposed to it in Burlington. Why is that uh, not a solution to this? Well, no, no, I'm not saying I'm I made the distinction of, of should citizens like directly impose discipline on city employees? Like that is the furthest uh, you could possibly go. I mean, imagine just citizens sit there and say, I'm going to, I'm deciding how to discipline uh, someone from the electric company or a teacher. Like that's quite far. However, that doesn't mean that we can go right. We shouldn't go right up to that line where citizens should have direct input, where the, where the discipline imposed should be transparent, where citizens should have to, uh, hold the police and the city to account for the discipline they do impose. Like those are all very strong and robust uh, uh, systems. So the distinction I was just making is, is sort of this like direct imposition of discipline on city employees by citizens. What, what Burlington and a lot of, of, of jurisdictions really need to change, and which we really had a problem with, was uh, that the disciplinary proceedings remain confidential. Um, in Burlington now, the, the rule is that any time a cop is disciplined, it's confidential. There's discipline that I've undertaken as a chief of police against Burlington cops that I think uh, is strong, aggressive, strict discipline. You know, um, no one will ever find out because in Burlington, that's a confidential city matter, and I don't support that. Well, let's talk a little bit about what happened for you in Burlington. First, this has been an eventful six months. Um, in January, you received a PhD in philosophy from the City University of New York. But a month earlier, you resigned as the Burlington ch uh, police chief after you admitted that you had created an anonymous Twitter account to uh, troll a critic of the police department, and then you had denied that you'd done so to a reporter. Can you talk about the events that led to your resignation as police chief? Yeah, I mean, those, you know, I did unequivocally. Uh, I sent like eight tweets in 45 minutes, uh, directed at one critic of the city. Like, um, I was coming off a really bad bike accident. I had my concussion symptoms coming back. And there were issues in the Burlington Police Department and the city that were very stressful. And it all came together. I was taking that very, very passively in a lot of ways until, you know, I just said, hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. How this person like to be criticized for, for uh, 45 minutes? And then I realized it just, it was out of character and it wasn't becoming. But by the time I was asked by the press a week later, um, I felt like someone had walked up to me in the middle of a party and asked me if I was the person who farted. Like it was very embarrassing. I felt ashamed of what I did. It was out of character. And, and, and I didn't tell her the truth, but I went to the mayor and said, listen, I'm under tremendous, tremendous pressure. I did this thing I shouldn't have done. Uh, it was wrong. And, and to his credit, I think the mayor did the right thing. He said, Brandon, I've been watching the pressure you're under. I know about your bike accident. I'm seeing what's going on here. I've watched you pour your heart into policing for years. You're getting resistance from your union. You're getting resistance. You just take time off. Take some time off. You need it. And uh, the professionals and, and you know, the, the medical folks I, I spoke to agreed. They said, take several weeks off. I did. I came back renewed. But our agreement was, was 
if we were ever asked again, and I agree, we're, we're going to tell the truth. It took a few months, but the press asked again, and we told the truth. And, um, you know, it, it resulted in me deciding that uh, with all the, all the stuff that was going on in policing and in the city, it was, uh, it was healthier for me and, and, and for the city to, to part ways. Do you regret the things that led to your leaving the job? Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I, I you know, 45 minutes of, of listen, I'll, I'll be candid. I mean, I think the person, uh, I know city officials right now serving more than one. I, I, I'll say in, in, in complete candor, I know three city officials who say that, that, that these are very progressive, reform-minded people who are literally leading America in the changes that they're seeking in their relative uh, professions, saying this type of toxic treatment online like keeps me up at night. It gets under my skin. This is a really intimate city. Um, it shouldn't bother me, but it does. And it's a very negative part of um, our civic life. I don't like it and it makes us a worse city. And you know, I, I agree. I did the wrong thing about it. I responded in the wrong way um, at the confluence of a lot of pressure. And of course I regret that. Um, right now though, in American policing, part of me is grateful to be sort of just on the outside of it where I can do things like write a New York Times op-ed, um, talk about police reform, do types of research that w without being in the cauldron of uh, um, the issue. If I was the chief now, the, the folks that spend 20 hours in public comment demanding um, these reforms would literally be camped outside my house demanding my resignation. Um, yet on the outside, folks, my, my, my cops were saying, you're too liberal. Not all of them, but many. Um, outsiders with a broader view of policing were saying, you're probably the most, among the most progressive police chiefs in the country. And then in Burlington, they're saying, you're like a backward, you know, like brutalist chief who needs to be fired. Like, to be out of that, I don't, and I don't entirely regret being out of that. Uh, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're spending this half hour talking with former Burlington Police Chief Brandon Del Pozo. Um, you wrote in your New York Times op-ed piece that uh, you had brought a group of your Burlington officers to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which is a memorial to victims of lynching. Mm -hmm. uh, and you wrote that many of your officers uh, were skeptical and some of them hated it. Um, why did you do that? And what did you, what do you think it accomplished in hindsight? Yeah, yeah. An interesting, uh, incident because I think it really brings to, to light like the fundamental tension in Burlington where you have a, a reform-minded police department and then you have a very uh, um, involved public, you know, the public was like, this is just a, a publicity stunt. And, you know, I, I, I take umbrage at that. I read a great account in the London Review of Books of the Lynching Memorial on the way to a police conference. It brought tears to my eyes and I said, I want to take my cops there. When I went there as part of Rivera Institute uh, Police Reform Steering Committee, um, I wept and I said, you know, if, if cops could understand that even though there, there, were, there are no reported lynchings in Vermont, and even though Vermont was a northern state, um, Black Americans bring this, this, this weight, this, this legacy of racial violence with them, and they bring it with them everywhere, and it's still alive today in, in things like Tamir Rice and Jordan Edwards, uh, Tatiana, and now George Floyd. I said, you've got to understand not only implicit bias, like what you might be thinking about how you uh, 
see, for example, a black motorist, but understand what they're thinking when they see you. And it might not be your fault because you're a good, fair-minded cop who's trying hard, but there's a lot of legacy packed into that. And what the legacy is called the Legacy Museum and the lynching, what, what the Legacy Museum and the lynching memorial do is really powerfully convey that to you. And I wanted to build a curriculum around that that complemented stuff like implicit bias. So police officers might understand what's going on in the mind and the heart of, of a black American who encounters the police, knowing the legacy that precedes it. That was the intent. It was uh, aborted halfway through just because of the way things went with uh, policing in, in Vermont in my tenure. But I think that's an important lesson that we all ought to learn. It, uh, it reminded me reading that passage. I um, joined my uh, late mother on a trip to Lithuania where part of her family was from and we were in a museum to victims of the Holocaust, uh, a good portion of which uh, took place in Lithuania. And while we were in there, a group of soldiers came in and I asked, um, their commander spoke good English and I said, why are the soldiers here? And he said, this is a mandatory part of the training for our soldiers to understand how our military was misused during that time so that it wouldn't happen again. So uh, I was very moved by that, seeing them there. Yeah, you, know, you don't know how um, effective this training is, but it's not ineffective. We just don't know the extent to which the effects last or how deep they go. But right, like Germany has reckoned with the Holocaust and taken responsibility for it. Uh, in a way that if you were to bring that over to the US and slavery and racial violence, we, we have not come close to at all. Um, but you know, DC police do go to uh, um, museums in DC that deal with, uh, uh, you know, our racial legacy. There are, there are cops that go to, in different jurisdictions, go to like, for example, the a Holocaust Memorial as a vehicle for talking about uh, race and justice. So, I mean, a lot of it is going to come down to rethinking about how we police period in the first place and also the type of people who we make inclined to join policing, but it's all got to happen, right? Not only these trainings, but, but a very fundamental change in policing as well. You know, these episodes in the past where we've had these horrific police killings of unarmed black people have inevitably led to calls for reform and yet reform somehow keeps translating into more killing, into increased militarization of police, more racial disparities in policing. Can policing be reformed or do we need to uh, destroy policing in order to save public safety? Yeah, that's, that's a compelling way to, to um, frame it. I mean, the militarization is a problem. I think part of that is the, uh, you know, we're a nation that spent over a decade at war from 2001 onward, more than that, more than a decade. And a lot of the, uh, the, the men and women who really valued their service came back looking for a home that took the best of, of their military experience and, and allowed them to continue living by those values in the U.S. And, you know, what they, the closest thing you get domestically is policing, but it's a horrible fit. Like, I, I, it's hard. It's a hard conversation to have, but if you're a veteran and, you know, listen, I was never in combat, let's be clear, but I, I am a veteran, not in combat. I can't compare my experiences to those men and women that made that sacrifice. But um, it's hard. To, veterans need to understand American policing does not need a power military outlook and a power military. And I don't, listen, I'll say this too. It's a very juvenile outlook in some ways. 
because real military uh, values are about discipline, teamwork, restraint, um, understanding the, the, the value of American lives and sanctifying them. And then a lot of the stuff we actually get is like militaristic equipment. It's uh, uh, an aggressive posture. You know, that, that's, not, that's not, when I think of the great values of the military, that's kind of not, not what I think of. Um, I think we need to reconcile that. And then, yeah, I think there's a lot that police are asked to do that, that they're not very good at, and it's not entirely their fault. They're asked to, to respond to an overdose crisis, but they're not trained uh, addiction interventionists. They're asked to respond to acute mental health crises, but they get very perfunctory training in, in, in mental health crisis intervention. And so they're generalists, and they take pride as can-do people in being able to do anything, but we really, we can't destroy policing, not because it's impossible and not because it shouldn't be on the table, but because, I mean, right now, violent crime is going up in a lot of American cities, and the people who suffer, once again, are the poor. The poor tend to be communities of color. Like, they will suffer no matter what it seems. But, but to, to take mental health and, and, and overdose and take those responsibilities and the funding out of police and give it to other social service first responders, that has to happen. That, that's, that's overdue. When we were flush with money in Burlington, I had the ambition of doing that in addition to policing. But in a lean time, you may have to reduce policing. I mean, but, but it has to happen. Something has to happen. So you have a certain luxury now. You're no longer uh, a, a police chief in the public eye. If you were called in, if a major city did in fact defund or abolish its police and decided to reconstruct a different model of public safety and you were asked to lead that, what would it look like? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I was, in my time in Burlington, I was recruited to be the, the chief or commissioner of two major American cities. Um, my interest and loyalties were with Burlington. Um, so I'm saying that to say I've given a lot of this thought because I've had these job interviews, uh, you know, the mayor knew about them, where a major American city said, Brandon, what would you do? And my answer was to put public safety under the umbrella of public health. Um, if you talk about the most idealistic goals of policing, um, they are about saving lives, reducing violence, getting people home safe, right? And not just for one block or one person or one neighborhood, but for an entire jurisdiction. The definition of public health is community level, like population level, reduction of morbidity and mortality. Part of morbidity is injury, right? Morbidity is just illness. Uh, mortality is death. So the police play a role in the public health mission of a city, but what they do is pursue these goals that really don't link up well with public health, right? Arrests by themselves don't play out into morbidity and mortality reduction in healthier communities. Seizing drugs doesn't necessarily, seizing guns doesn't necessarily, writing tickets, doing traffic enforcement, all of that like links up in some ways, but when we allow police to point at those measures and say, we're accomplishing our public safety goals by these metrics, you're getting these surrogate endpoints that may or may not have anything to do with whether a community is healthy and whether it can flourish. The next step is making explicit the requirement that policing contributes to the health of a community. And in doing so, they have to move beyond these endpoints to show that they actually deliver the goods of better health. But they also, I think, will be forced to collaborate with social workers, harm reductionists, people who are better suited to treat these social problems as part of a collaborative team to actually increase the community's health. Um, once we start taking that seriously, once mayors and city councils uh, and legislatures start demanding that, I think 
it's going to be like getting hit with a frying pan for police leadership because they had the luxury of not having to think hard about this problem for a while. But you will get the types of reforms that, that Americans want um, when you start demanding that public safety falls under the umbrella of public health. Do you think that the idea of defunding the police, you know, and, and that has come to mean many things, but, you know, if it were to mean deconstructing the current apparatus and reconstructing from scratch, is that the only way that what you're describing can happen? You know, I think that, like, in the way that some elected officials in the last few years shift the center of gravity of debates, um, defunding and abolishing the police, like, shifts the center of gravity in a constructive way, or some rhetorically that say moves the window. Um, no, I mean, listen, I don't think citizens will tolerate not being able to get emergency help consistently when they need it. Um, when you look at, at you know, there, there are shootings and homicides in Burlington, and, and they happen during the day, and they happen on major thoroughfares, and innocent people get caught in the crossfire. Um, to say that we're going to, like, put our ability to decisively protect people and hold people who do that accountable, we're going to put all that on pause while we deconstruct and reconstruct. It just shows a, a lack of understanding of how public administration works, number one. And number two, like, is abdicating the main role of the government, which is to, like, protect people. Um, so I just, I don't understand how putting public safety from a police perspective on pause for any amount of time will work without literally hurting the worst off citizens more. But that doesn't mean that there can't be like a radical reconception of policing. And I talk about like sort of, I use this, this like metaphor of the frying pan. Sometimes like after you stop seeing stars, you get clarity when you get hit with a frying pan. Um, and I think that we could stand to have a frying pan effect in American policing. And that may cause, call for something pretty radical. But as you can see from what I've said, I don't think it just means like disassembling the police and winging it until we figure out what to do. I've done this job for 23 years, and I guarantee that just means vulnerable, um, lower income, often people of color are just going to suffer for that. And, and they're suffering now for other reasons, but they can't always bear the brunt of this. That, that's just more than, than we can ask of them. Okay, well, Brandon Del Pozo, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Hey, thank you, David. This was a real pleasure. Brandon Del Pozo is the former police chief of Burlington. He is now a public health and drug policy researcher affiliated with Brown University. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue with the Vermont Conversation. <laughs> 